your city, and that is that people are patient when they drive, as far as I have observed. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but when the speed limit's 35, they're typically doing about 35, 40 miles per hour, and I haven't had anybody like fly by me or, or draft me from behind, and you NASCAR fans know what that means. Yeah, yeehaw, right? And so that hasn't happened, and so it's been a stress-free commute back and forth. It's just been a pleasure to get to know Norfolk a little bit as well. And so, again, it's good to be here safely and to see you tonight. Again, if you've not met my wife and you are not a part of the 100 percenters, okay, I'll uh, reintroduce her. This is Cassandra, my wife, here on the front pew. And our uh, almost four-month-old daughter, Lana, I think is in the nursery and hopefully she's behaving herself. This is her third time in the nursery ever, so uh, maybe the third time will be a charm, or maybe it'll be very different than the first, which were great. And so uh, be sure to meet them as well. I, I hope you've had an opportunity today to go to the Lord and pray for these meetings. We need the Holy Spirit's help. We do. And more than you know, I need God's help. I'm just a messenger. I'm literally just a conduit in the hands of God through whom he speaks. I need him. There's nothing special about me. I need the Lord. And you need the Lord. I hope you have prayed for yourself. And that's okay. That's all right. Take heed to yourselves. And I hope you've prayed for one another, praying for your church. We need more believers praying for their church. Prayer is not necessarily the answer, but God is. And prayer is dependence on God's power. Prayer is. And so I hope you've prayed. I also hope you've had opportunity today, or at least you've made opportunity, to read John 17. Who had an opportunity today, and you took it today, to read John 17? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Keep it up. Keep it up. Keep it up. Okay. All right. Okay. Half of you. That's good. All right. John 17. I want to encourage you as a church to get very familiar with the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ for you. So tonight, or tomorrow morning, or tomorrow afternoon, get familiar with John chapter 17. We'd find in there the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ for his church. And that is unity. That's sanctification. And that is the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is all accomplished by your relationship with the Word. That's where it comes from. And so I hope you get familiar with that. Also, be prayerfully considering and working on right now who you can invite to the Thursday evening service. The gospel of Christ will be preached and so I hope you would fervently invite somebody, pray about somebody you know already, and they already have a decent relationship with you. Invite them to come Thursday evening to hear the gospel at 7 p.m. All right, so pray about that, and please make it a priority. I want to invite you tonight to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. And you can make your way to the second chapter this evening. Ephesians in chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 will we'll visit many verses, not just visit uh, uh, these verses, but these verses are our authority for the evening. And we'll be in several different places in the book of Ephesians, but uh, the message truly comes from Ephesians in chapter 2 this evening. Last night during our message, I had mentioned something about the dangers of the pendulum swing. You remember me mentioning that last night if you were here? The dangers of the pendulum swing. 
And I said that I had heard a quote in college, and it has stuck with me to this day, and it always will. And that quote is, and it came from a man who's been in the ministry for maybe 40 years at this time. And from his wisdom and his observation and just his walk with the Lord, he says, and it is true, that there is a ditch on both sides of the road. You say, what road? The road of Christianity of biblical Christianity, there is a ditch on both sides of the road. And if we're not careful, we can sometimes swing maybe our, our spiritual pendulum uh, to the extreme on the right, my right tonight, and the extreme on the left, if we're not careful, if we're not governed by what the Word of God actually says. And so I want to mention those just a little bit tonight, the ditch on the right and the ditch on the left. If you would just think about the ditch on the right... And this is where we kind of parked last night. It can be said of those in the ditch on the right that I am sufficient. That can sometimes be the mentality of those who are far to the extreme on maybe the right side, that they tend to believe that their external performances are sufficient and that really the condition of the heart is not as important as what I can do in and of myself, apart from God's influence on my heart. But I want us to think about the ditch on the left side of the road tonight for a few moments. And they might say in this ditch, this might be their motto or their mantra, that I can do what I want because God accepts me. I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. There's not a thing I can do to lose my salvation. And therefore, whether they know it or not, they say, I can do what I want because God accepts me. <laughs> I'm in Christ and there's nothing that can change that. We go from legalism to uh, hyper grace, if you will, uh, taking advantage of God's grace. I can sin because God will forgive me. You want to know this tonight that both ditches, whether it is on the right or on the left, they may seem different. They may seem like polar opposites, and sometimes in practicality they are, but both ditches are characterized by the same heart issue. You know what that heart issue is tonight, church? It is pride. It's pride. I am sufficient. I can do what I want. The motivating factor of the heart there for either groups of believers is pride. It is self, where you are the center of your Christianity. You know, it is if, as many Christians, are confused about who they are. Confused about who they are and their position in Christ and what that is to look like before the men and the people of this world. You know, our American culture is facing a lot of confusion, isn't it? A lot of confusion, and it seems like it's just piling on more and more in the last uh, eight to ten years. There's the gender confusion. There is the confusion regarding truth. What is truth? Even as Pontius Pilate looked truth right in the face and asked him, the Lord Jesus Christ, what is truth? Our culture is asking the same question. And those who, are, who have influence in our culture are responding and saying truth is whatever you want it to be. Confusion. Uh, presidential election confusion. 
<laughs> presidential election. We're wondering who actually won the election, and you may have your solid opinion on that, but nonetheless, our culture's confused. Confused about the coronavirus, if you will. Is it as dangerous as they made it appear to be? Are all the restrictions really necessary? And friend, the list can go on and on. What our culture is confused about. Who runs the home? What is marriage? Amazing. And as a result, many don't know how to live because they don't know what to think. If there was ever a group of people who knew how to think and live, it ought to be born-again Christians. If there was ever a group of people who knew exactly what God expects from them without confusion, it ought to be the redeemed, those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. We sang uh, music about grace tonight. I, I hope you will continue to learn to sing these truths from the heart and sing them as loud and as wonderful as you can, no matter who you think is listening, because these truths are, in fact, amazing. But if there was ever a group of people who were not confused about who they were, it ought to be us, those who are born again. Are we of the world or not? Does God care how I live or not? Those questions can be asked. I want to ask you this question tonight. Should being saved yield any consequences in your life here and now? Is there anything that should be produced in your life since new life has been produced in your soul? Is there anything that we should expect? Is there anything that God should expect to come out of our lives when he has done the miraculous in our souls by birthing us into the family of God? Is there anything that God should expect from his people? I want us to notice tonight Ephesians chapter 2, several verses in this chapter. Much doctrine will be shared tonight and much application by the grace of God. So let's begin in Ephesians in chapter 2 and we'll read several verses, 1 through 13, and then we'll jump down to verse 19. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, again the church at Ephesus, the redeemed Christians, he says, and you hath he, God, hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in, times, in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, a spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, the devil, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, just like everybody else. But God, hallelujah. Here's a, a transition, here's a contrast. But God, verse 4, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, 
not of works, lest any man should boast. For, as a result, because of this grace, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. He's molding a masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at, the, that, at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Jesus Christ, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Friend, whether you were a Gentile, non-Jew, or you were Jewish, Christ died for you. And if you accept Christ, whether you're from Africa or you're from North America, if you are in Christ, we are all in the same spiritual family. That is really the central idea of those couple of verses there, but there are some significant principles that we cannot avoid. Jump down to verse number 19. Now, therefore, ye are now, uh, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together, for an habitation of God through the Spirit. No matter what you look like, no matter where you're from, if you're in Christ, God has you in the same family and you are the most important thing in the world to God, to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to notice chapter 4 and just three verses. Chapter 4 and verse 22. That you put off concerning the former conversation or lifestyle the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. I want to preach to you a message tonight entitled, Be Who You Are. Christian, be who you are in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I need the help of the Holy Ghost now. And your people need your personal touch. Lord, they, there may be some things in the Word of God tonight that your people already know. There may be some things in the Word of God that they hear and they see in someone else's life, but may we be honest tonight and, and, and vulnerable to you tonight, and may we present our hearts to you to speak to us personally about whatever it is. Teach us your word. Revive the saint. Revive the Christian tonight. And Lord, please, don't allow anything to get in the way to hinder or distract from you speaking to hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to notice that, number one, our spiritual life was dead without Christ because sin separated us from God. Our spiritual life, it was dead. It, it, it was, uh, we had no relationship with God because sin 
has set, made a, 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 a great rift between us and God. It separated us from God. It cut us off from God. Therefore, as the practical result of being cut off from the holiness of God, we were very much alive to our flesh instead. We were dead to God spiritually, but we were alive to something. We were very aware of and very alert to our flesh. So we were very much alive to the material world only. Many people, all people, who, most people who walk about this world without Christ, all they truly care about is what they can see, the material things of this life. And they might only care what they can do and use that according to their flesh. Not only that, we were dead to a relationship with God. Before Christ, we didn't know God. We had no clue what it meant to know God. You see, no matter how long you lived without Christ in your life, whether it was the first seven years of your life, whether it was the first two decades or three decades or so of your life, it was your nature to follow after the ways of the world, the devil, and your flesh. That is just who you were. That's what you did. But we must understand that Satan is the key influencer of the mindset we find in the world. He authorized the mindset we find in those who are not saved, a, a mindset that is essentially all about self. At the end of the day, we may call it satanic, we may call it worldliness, we might call it maybe on unholiness, if you will, but it is really, and those, all those things are true, but it is all about self. Satan wants the people of this world to live for self and to serve self. Basically, he has said and made man to feel like he is God, that the man is God, that he gets to determine the different uh, important aspects of his own life. But just by making just a simple observation from Scripture of how Satan works, he is, his influence is subtle gradual and deceptive. If you know anything about the beginning of time, if we were to go back to Genesis in chapter 2 and 3, and we'd notice in verses 16 and 17, and just the first six chapters of uh, uh, verses of chapter 3, we would see there that, and you know this, most of you, that God gave a command and revealed the consequences for violating the command. God was very clear with Adam and Eve. They had been warned about uh, what could happen if they violated God's command, if they disobeyed God. We must understand tonight that rebellion says everything about Satan's character. God sets up a law, God sets up a command, and Satan does what he can to get the people of this world to just simply rebel against God's command, against God's standard, if you will. And so if we were to look back there in Genesis, we would see this conversation that, that um, Satan had with Eve. God gave the command and Satan came along. And he questions Eve about what God said. He said, yea, hath God said? What he was doing was he was uh, casting a shadow of doubt. Did, did God really mean what he said? I mean, is that what you think God meant? Is that really what he meant from his perspective? And then Satan says, 
you shall not surely die. I mean, you're, if you eat of, that, uh, of a different tree, you're not going to drop dead, he, dead here on the spot. Of course, everything was perfect then, and there was no poison necessarily. And then if we were to notice the rest of that story, Satan implies to Eve that she would have a greater knowledge about life and God knows it's true. That if she took of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, Satan tells Eve that she would have a better understanding of life. And so through all that deception, through all that gradual temptation, through the subtlety of Satan, Eve's perspective changed. Satan's goal was not only to deflect God's glory from coming through his creation, but to get Adam and Eve to do whatever felt right to them. Whatever, not what God said being the standard, but rather what they began to feel beginning to be the dictator or the leader of their lives. He led them to do whatever felt right to them in the moment. Satan never informs the world of the consequences to come in the long run. Instead, he implies through the advertisements that we see in the world, and it is, do what you want. Do what makes you feel good. Satan never tells you of the consequences of doing whatever it is that you would like to do. He implies through these uh, advertisements, and he basically gave Eve this uh, tempted her with this idea, have fun now, don't worry about dying. Die later. You never hear Satan communicate that way, do you? You don't. He tempted Jesus. He said, if you jump off the pinnacle, pinnacle of the temple, your angels will come and gather you up. He never tells us and tempts us and it tells us about the consequences for he would be out of business if he did that. The Bible says in Romans 5.12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. You understand tonight, and we know this, being six to 7,000 years later, that God was right. Sin brings death. It brings spiritual death, which cuts off every man from having a relationship with God, and that eventually leads to a physical death. And if you die without Christ, you are eternally separated from God, and you cannot go back. But realize, along with our sin nature, which we all have now, came the tendency to try and justify our behavior. You understand that? Um, when Adam, when God called on Adam and said, Where art thou, Adam? After Eve sinned, God questions Adam about what took place, and he pointed right to his wife. <laughs> By our nature, immediately we try to justify our behavior, maybe shift the blame, or maybe try to sugarcoat the reason for why we have made certain sinful decisions. And we hear this often. When people try to justify their behavior, whether they're saved at times or if they're lost, we've heard things like this in order to justify decisions. Well, if God wants me, if God, God wants me to enjoy life, why shouldn't I do whatever makes me happy? Yes, God wants you to enjoy life. And so what we do is we take truths like that and we twist them and we pollute them and we try to justify what we have done. Why should I not do whatever makes me happy? Maybe statements like this. Didn't God create man and women to be attracted to each other? 
So why shouldn't I indulge in secret taboo behavior? We try to justify, hey, hey, God planted this, God gave this, so why shouldn't I indulge? I mean, doesn't the Bible say something about that? You see, saved or unsaved, Satan's goal is to provoke you to rebel against the holiness of God. That's his goal, and he's very good at deceiving you into rebelling against the holiness of God, whether you're saved or unsaved. If you're saved, he's still at work in your life. Therefore, we can conclude that the course of this world is for people to do right in their own eyes. Oh, we wouldn't doubt that, especially today, that the course of this world, the culture of this world, the mentality of the world in which you and I live in is to do whatever seems right in the eyes of man. If you are saved today, I just described your old life. The old mentality, your old nature. If you're saved tonight, this is the mentality that you have been set free from. This is the nature for which Jesus Christ died in order to give you the victory over. And that mentality is, I can do whatever makes me feel good in the moment. You see, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, you or, or ye were dead in trespasses and sins. It's a past tense statement. Ye were, that's who you used to be. You see, the same sinful nature of Adam and Eve has been passed down to every person in the world, including us, before God saved our soul. As they please Satan rather than God, so did we. Let's not forget that. As they do what satisfies their flesh, so did we. The consequence for the sin of Adam and Eve is that every person is born separated from God. And in other words, all who are not in Christ are unholy. They miss the mark. They live life totally falling short of the mark of God's holiness. But don't forget, before you were in Christ, you and I were unholy too. That is our past life. Praise God for His grace and the truth that he cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, and they are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. So, with that said, how then are Christians supposed to live their lives? If that is who you were, what now or how should we now live our lives? What does God expect? Does he expect anything from us who have been reunited with him? How are Christians supposed to live their lives, friend? Christians are to live holy because they are new creatures in Christ. Christians, you and I, we are to live holy. Why? Because we are new creatures in Christ who used to live unholy just by nature, but now being in Christ, as the scriptures uh, tell us, God expects something different from you. He really does. Notice again, verses 4-9, through nine, But God who is rich in mercy for his great life, love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show forth the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, 
The world is dead to a relationship with God. But God has quickened the believer. What does that mean? He, he quickened us as the Apostle Paul uses this idea here. Quicken, it means to produce life and thus make alive. God produces the life by his grace and by his power. And as a result of that, as you and I, if you're saved, we've experienced this, that now we have new life. We are in Christ Jesus. That is something that only God could perform. He has quickened us. He has brought us to life. Praise the Lord. Therefore, as a result, as a consequence, in contrast to the rest of the world, Christians are spiritually alive to God. We know him. We have been made holy by the one who is holy. Isn't that amazing, church? But understand this. You have been saved by the power of God's grace. Salvation can only take place by God's grace. You see, God chose grace to be the transforming agent to save people. God did not save good works to be the transforming agent. God did not choose that church attendance would be that transforming agent for your soul. God did not choose that having uh, a good skill or having good looks would be the transforming uh, agent of salvation. You see, the Christian embraced God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ. You made a decision to accept God's grace. Salvation does not come by trying to be a better person. In other words, we cannot become holy by trying to be holy. Friend, that is religion. That is a religious effort trying to become holy by being holy, by being good, by practicing good habits. Instead, we can now live holy because God made us holy in Christ Jesus. God did that in your life. What does it mean to be holy? Holiness is being, it means to be separated from sin unto God. Separated from sin, pulled out of the miry clay, broken free out of bondage by the grace of God, and separated unto God himself. Just as Christ is separated unto God himself, that's what it means to be holy. Separated from sin. If you're saved, you are accepted and kept by God's grace, no matter what you do. That is the honest truth tonight, that you are kept by God's power. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and there's absolutely nothing you can do to change that eternal fact. Praise the Lord. But we are living in a culture of American Christianity where worldliness is essentially being justified under the banner of God accepts me. Let me say that again. We're living in a culture of American Christianity where worldliness or unholiness is being justified under statements like, God accepts me. Don't, don't, don't judge me. 
And so it is true, if you're saved by God's grace, you are kept forever by his grace. You are accepted because of Jesus Christ, because of his blood. That is the Bible truth. But let me ask you this question tonight, church. As a consequence of being saved, why did God save you? What was the purpose of God bringing the Holy Spirit into your life and saving your soul? Why? We, we must answer this question. If your answer is, well, he saved me to take me to heaven, you're half right. You're half right on that. I want you to notice with me Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 4 through 6. Why did God save you? Notice Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 6. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, for what purpose? To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, notice verse 12, that we should, why did God save us? That we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. Notice the end of verse 14. Unto the praise of his glory. Why did God save us? Why did he wash us clean of our sin? Why did he bring us back into a relationship with him? What was the purpose of that? You listen tonight. God saved you so that Christ can receive glory by living through you. That's why he saved you, so that he can receive the glory by living through you. He's in you so that he can come through you. Does that make sense as the Bible teaches us? The Spirit of Christ lives in you so he can live through you. God saved you so that your whole being can bring glory to the transforming power of his grace now and forever now and forever, he saved you so that your life can draw attention to his, the power of his grace. Your life as a Christian now has a purpose. God did not just save you for heaven, although it is true. Every born-again person is on their way to dwell with Christ for eternity in heaven, but you're still here. There's still a life to live to the glory of God. You see, it is to draw attention to the power of his grace. That power that can take a person who was born separated from God and reunite him with God through Christ. He, that power that, that took unholy, an unholy soul as you and I and somehow, miraculously, by his loving grace, made us holy and changed everything about our eternity and our soul. That is the power that our lives are to be pointing the people of this world to, the power of his glory and grace. Therefore, Christians are to live contrary to the course of this world because they have been separated from it. God is clear here in the inspiration of Scripture that we have clearly been separated from the old man. It's not who we are anymore. And so as a result, as a consequence, we are to live in opposition to the course that everybody in this world is running. What I want to do, what I want to think, the decisions I want to make, what I want to watch, what I want to see, what I want to do. Listen tonight, friend, we can't make a difference if we are not different. 
But what's the difference? We cannot make a difference if we are not different. But a significant number of Christians are failing to connect the inward transformation with the practical outward transformation. Oh, they will say, yes, I'm in Christ and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a new creature in him and he accepts me. But many of those same Christians and many of them can be seated here tonight at Community Bible Church. There often is a failure to connect that inward change with the practical outward change. They verbally rejoice in being accepted by God, yet their conversation or their lifestyle seems to contradict God's plan for the here and now. They say this is what is true of them spiritually, but the lives in which they live contradict what they said over here about being in Christ. Allow me to illustrate this with a real-life example. In 2019, the number one hit song within contemporary Christian pop music remains at the top of the charts. At the top of the charts, and at this point in 2021, this song in particular is now number two, <laughs> but it's still at the top of the charts. The story behind, and I won't name the song tonight. The story behind the words alone explain that. When you're going through an emotional battle and aren't sure what to think, you can be sure that what God says about you is true regardless of your feelings. And that's true. While the words of the song are biblical and true, the words alone do not summarize the message of the song in its entirety. Back in 2019, I, I did some research on this number one Christian song, as it's so-called, because its title, the title, I wasn't familiar with the title. I was looking up what was the number one song in uh, Christian pop culture, if, if you will, as they call it. And so I found the name of the song, and I was not familiar with it. And so I, I searched the song specifically. A few seconds after pressing play on Spotify, I realized that I had actually heard the song. I had heard it before. And I could only recall hearing it in a department store like Kohl's several times. I said, I've, I've heard that song, and where did I hear that before? I, I had to have heard it out in public somewhere. And so I, I think I narrowed it down to the specific place I heard it. Since uh, Miley Cyrus is a fav uh, famous pop singer, I remember assuming it was one of her songs playing in the store because of the similarities of the voice and style. Now, I don't go out of my way and listen to secular music artists, okay? But if you are going to live in this world, you're going to hear some things that are of the world, and that is true. If you go to a sporting event, you will hear these things and know who's singing it. <laughs> to my disappointment... Billboard magazine, which is a secular company that tracks music ratings of every genre, ranked this song as number one in the Christian category. Now it being number two, unless you fact check me, okay? <laughs> Some artists who are categorized as Christian singers can also produce music videos with their music. And there's nothing wrong with mu music videos. They can more adequately portray the message of the song. In the video for this song, the artist is dressed 
in moving in such a way that draws the attention of the viewer to herself that he would actually be tempted to sin rather than blessed by a song that is supposed to bring glory to a holy God. The words, the music itself, and the screenplay of this music artist all produced, if you brought it all together, it all produced a message that said, nothing else matters about me beside the fact that God accepts me. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter necessarily how I appear. It doesn't matter how I carry myself. The only thing that matters in my Christian life, the only thing that at the end of the day that God cares about is that He accepts me. Since God accepts us, church, in Jesus Christ, what does the Bible say He expects from us? Yes, in fact, through Jesus Christ, we are accepted by God, but what is the natural consequence of being in Christ? What is supposed to be coming out from your life if you are in Jesus? Listen, friend, here's what God expects. God expects Christians to abandon their old lifestyle. Why? Because it absolutely contradicts who they really are. It contradicts who you say you are over here and you say it boldly and you, you post a Bible verse and you post and make it public that you are a Christian, but on the practical side of things, it does not say what you said over there. Notice verse 10. The Bible says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto what church? Good works. You know that there's a difference between good and evil? <laughs> evil works, good works. We are now his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That's what Ephesians 1 was talking about. God did not choose who was going to be saved, but God chose what he was going to expect and the work he was going to do in Christians, and that was to conform them into the image of Christ. That is what God chose for you as a believer, that your goal in life is to become like Jesus, which is a work of his grace. Notice with me verses 19 through 22. Now, therefore, we are no more strangers and foreigners, but what? Fellow citizens with the saints, with the rest of the family of God and of the household of God. And we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building is fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. What are you tonight if you're in Christ? Who are you? You are God's workmanship. He is trying to mold a masterpiece, and a masterpiece is not tainted. From the first moment of salvation, God began to mold you into the likeness of Jesus. But what is the practical purpose for God making you like his son Jesus? Oh, many of, the Christians, many of the Christians over here who might swing that pendulum to the ditch on the left side of the road, they'll say, oh yes, I'm in Christ Jesus and, and God is, is still working on me. In fact, they will say those same things. But friend, we must ask the question, what is the purpose of God trying to transform you into the image of Jesus? 
Now, friend, tonight I'm, I'm talking about, and, and the Bible is talking in, in contrast to believers who choose to live over here. Uh, this isn't necessarily talking about failing and, and sinning and stumbling and, and choosing to sin and having a sensitive heart and knowing you're not supposed to do that. There are believers who literally justify living like the world. They literally justify it. And they have spiritual words to use to justify it. But what is the practical, the everyday reason for God making you like his son, Jesus? You're not the only ones who are hot out there, by the way. I'm just letting you know, okay, you're not alone. Listen tonight, please. God is making you like Jesus because those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins need to see Jesus. God is transforming you into the image of Jesus Christ for what purpose? Yes, some people might take these verses and say, yes, God is going to present us to Christ holy and complete and totally glorious in his sight. Oh, yes, he is, but friend, we are still here. And the Bible is very clear that we have been brought out of the course of this world. Why? Because the world needs to see Jesus. People can't see God has separated your soul. Do you know anybody who can see your soul? That would be creepy, wouldn't it? They can't see that God has indeed justified you and given you grace and has saved your soul. They can only see the evidence of the inward transformation that pours over to the outward. That is what man's eyes can see, and that is all he can see. You see, the world around you will never begin to know that the living God has sanctified you unto himself, except you allow him to sanctify your lifestyle. Living according to your old lifestyle contradicts who you really are. We hear this all the time in our culture. Oh, you just need to be who you are. Maybe your parents have told you that. Just, just, just be who you are. Don't try to be something you are not. Don't, don't try to impress people. Just, just be who you are. And a lot of times that's been used to boost some self-esteem. But it's as if God tonight is telling us as a church and has been telling the churches for 2,000 years that you need to be who you really are. You are in Christ, but as we preached last night, there is a big difference between just doing certain things and actually being. You need to be who God made you in Christ Jesus. Living according to the world, like old lifestyle, contradicts who you really are. The Bible says in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid is the answer to that question. How shall we, Paul says, if you just think about his tone there, that reverent tone, who, a man who is so grateful for the grace of God. He says, he says, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Why do you want to still live there practically? You might say, shall I sin because I won't lose my salvation? That's what many Christians are saying. Oh, I'm not saved by what you think I should do. Friend, that is the truth. But why have we been saved? Why are we identifying with Jesus? And why does God identify with us? I want you to think about 
I don't know if they have them around here, but perhaps they do, and maybe you'll let me know as I say it, but the Fraternal Order of Police badges that you might see on license plates. You see those around here? You got a license plate, and it might have a little sheriff's badge next to it, but it, it's a pedestrian vehicle, right? Okay, so that's the Fraternal Order of Police badge. And so what those badges are really saying is that they signify that they themselves or they have a family member or they've got a really good friend who they say is their family member is a law enforcement officer, okay? And so that's what that badge is saying. I'm a, I'm a police officer or somebody I know really well is a police, police officer. And so people who have the badge use it, I believe, for my observation, they use it to maybe get out of a ticket. They've got the badge on the plate, and so they've kind of got this arrogance about them, this self-confidence about them. And trust me, when I was a teenager, I wanted one. Just so that they could drive however they want, and when they get pulled over, they can just say, yeah, uh, Norfolk Police Department. Yeah, my dad. Oh, okay. All right, go do whatever you want, right? You know what I'm talking about. You, you've seen those, and you maybe saw somebody cut you off in traffic, and they've got a fraternal order of police badge on their license plate. You see, the badge, it signifies that it's supposed to signify that they respect the laws, but sometimes the way they drive contradict the message of the badge. And we're scratching our heads. They're like, well, why do they get to do that? Because they have a badge. Listen, too often Christians don't allow the holiness of God to transform all that they are. They want to use God, but they don't necessarily want God to use them exactly how his word declares he can use them. The Bible's teaching us tonight that since we are in Christ Jesus, we have an obligation and we have the power to be who you are. You are holy. You are set apart. You are not of this world. You are a new creature. You are God's workmanship. You're free from the bondage of sin. You are a citizen of heaven. The Bible says here in these verses that we are essentially, we are royalty. What are you doing living like you're not royalty in Christ Jesus? That's who you were. That's who you are, rather. You are a part of the bride of Christ, the church. And it's a glorious church. And when we all get to heaven, God is going to present us to Christ as a beautiful and wonderful bride because there can be no sin in heaven. But friend, you are still here to be who you are. Listen, friend, God not only made you, made you holy in your spiritual position by grace, in the heart, in the soul, but he commands that it be carried out in your life by his grace. He commands it. He said, I haven't read any command here yet tonight. Listen, many believers fall back on buzz phrases. They say things like, only God can judge me, please. I don't even exactly know what that means. But I, it is true, but in many instances, I don't exactly get it. They might say things like, you know, having standards is legalistic. We're saved by grace. Well, amen. We are, indeed. But what does that sound like, church? Those statements? Only God can judge me, and he will. <laughs> having standards is legalistic. Things like that. Where does that mentality come from? Who has influenced that, that spirit? Yea, hath God said? Yes, sir. 
you won't surely die. You take one drink at the bar, you, you're not going to die. But God commands that it, this holiness be carried out in your life. God says by the, under the inspiration of Peter, he says, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, not, not fashioning yourselves, not living like you did not know God in your ignorance. Don't fashion your life that way. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. God commands practical holiness. Being holy is a command. Every choice we make is to fall within that realm of holiness. We ought to be asking ourselves before we make certain decisions, especially if it's something we, we might think could be uh, in disobedience to God's word is, the question we should ask is, is it, is it holy? Does it reflect that I am, have been separated from sin unto God, unto holiness? Is it holy is a question we ought to be asking ourselves. I ought to be asking myself more often. God's commands, church, all that he tells us to do and all that he tells us not to do, they are all holy. They are all holy. Every choice we make should fall under the realm of holiness. But again, church, why? Why does God command? Why does God command holiness? We've been made holy in Christ Jesus, okay, but why does He command that I live now a lifestyle that portrays that through Him I have been made holy? Why does God command holiness? The same answer is for the answer, why did, for the question, why did God save you? The answer is the same. Why did God save you? Why does God command holiness? The answer is the same. You say, for heaven, right? Well, yes, but you're still here. God saved you so that through your holy life, other people will see him. He saved you. He made you holy. He commands you to live like you're holy, not so that people can see and be impressed with the externals, which is what the Pharisees do. No, He commands you to live holy so that others can see Him through you. And God is holy, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth, and we must worship Him and live a lifestyle under the realm of the beauty of holiness. God commands this, not me. This is something, apart from God's grace, I can struggle with, but God still commands it. Why? Because we have been saved to shine our lights before the men, the unholy of this culture, of this world. That's why unsaved people need to see Christ. Unsaved people need to see Christ. We know these verses in Matthew chapter 5 coming from the words of Jesus to his disciples and, and those who want to learn more of him and learn more how to be like him. He says to his disciples in verse 13 of Matthew 5, he says, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor or lost its difference, wherewith shall it be salted? It is therefore or thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. Christ isn't necessarily saying that he's the light of the world, that he's the salt of the earth, although he is, but he's putting the responsibility on us 
Those who have him in our lives, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. That's just logical. You don't light a candle and put a basket over it, but you put it on a candlestick. Why? And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Jesus says, he commands us, let your light so shine before men. Why? That they may see your good works and that they might glorify who? Your Father who's in heaven. That's what Jesus said. The psalmist says in Psalm 40, verse 3, And he hath put a new song, a new theme, a new purpose for life in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and shall put their trust in the Lord. Listen, God commands you to live holy so that other people will see him, so that unpeople can see Christ. But listen, these commands are directly to a church. Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, that's a local church. You are to live holy so that your church family can see Christ. You say, well, they're already in Christ. What is the purpose of living Christ-like among my church family? Understand tonight that Christ edifies. One of the purposes of the local church is for you to edify, to sharpen one another in your walk, whether you are a teenager or whether you are in, uh, 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 somebody who has been saved for decades and decades. If you are in Christ, he has called you to edify one another. He has called you to that if you're in Christ. Listen, the Bible says in Hebrews 12, 14, to believers, to Hebrew believers, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man can see the Lord. Romans 14, 19 says, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for, as the word is used again, for peace. Hebrew says follow after peace. Romans, Paul says that we would therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify one another. These were written to churches. This is written to the community Bible church. But what does that word peace mean in these verses? Follow peace. Okay, just kind of make sure you know, that the, the waves among our relationships aren't choppy. Is that necessarily what it means? Peace in this, in this context is referring to living in a way that helps another believer grow spiritually. You understand that when Christ died on the cross, the book of Isaiah says that God was, that, that the chastisement of our peace was upon him. The word peace in these chapters of the Bible is talking about your edification, that Christ died on the cross so that you can be spiritually born again, so that you can be spiritually at peace. And we as now the believers who possess Christ are to be encouraging the peace of God, the edification of God. But unholiness is rooted in loving yourself more than God. We are to love one another as a result of loving God but unholiness, just as holy living is rooted in the power of God's grace, unholiness, drama, strife, where does it have its roots? In what Satan wanted Adam and Eve to do. Whatever they wanted to do. The Bible says in First or Second Samuel that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. It's confusing. That's what witchcraft does. It throws people off. 
It confuses. That's what evil is. It takes something good and it distorts it and it pollutes it and it like it sabotages you. God calls us to pursue peace with one another. And it results in loving one another, but unholy living, which is rooted in yourself, means that you love yourself more than others. Listen, the old lifestyle was all about you. That's how you used to live. That's how most people at the end of the day in our world, that's how they live. Why? Because that's what is to be expected from them. They are living like they are unholy. They're living like they don't know God. It's amazing. Uh, on a side note here, that, me, that us sometimes were surprised by the behavior of unsaved people. I once knew a, a, a young man, and I, I still know him, but this was in the past. Yeah, he, was a, he is a Christian. He's born again, but he had a job, and he left his job because his employees, his fellow employees, swore too much. Friend, that's how sinners are going to act. You are the light of the world. I mean, I believe at the end of the day there, he didn't really feel like he really needed a job, so he left is really what it was, but is because he was shocked that unsaved people were acting unsaved. Friend, that's how you and I were before God gave us a new nature. The old lifestyle was all about you, what you wanted to think, what you wanted to say, what you wanted to watch, what you wanted to listen to, what you wanted to wear or not wear, where you wanted to go, how you wanted to use your body, the people you wanted to be friends with, about uh, be friends with. It was all about your comfort, entertainment, and feelings. Yes, that's natural for the old man, but that's not what life is about now for you and I. It's about the people of the world, from our church family to those who are outside of the Christian body of Christ, that they would not see me, but that they would see the Lord Jesus Christ. That life is how people live who are dead to God and alive to this temporal world. The old life isn't who you are anymore. It's not who you are anymore. By God's grace, you are holy. You're a new creature. You are set apart unto God to be used for His pure and holy glory. Be who you are, holy. Be who you are. You say this is true in your soul, and only God can perform it, and only God can maintain your salvation, well then, you have the responsibility not to maintain your salvation, but you get to live for God because that's who you are. You are holy, set apart from sin unto God. Be holy. You say, how can I do that? You can be holy by first loving the Lord. I heard this quote from a preacher. He said, the Christian who loves God will embrace his authority. God, I want you to be in control of my life. Why? Because I love you. I love your way. I love your eternal plan. I love the kingdom of God. I love what you have done for me on the cross of Calvary. The person who, the Christian who loves God will embrace his authority. He will welcome whatever the Bible has to say about his new lifestyle. This is anti-rebellion. It's called submission. It is called sweet submission to the will of God. 
The Bible says in John 14, 9 through 11, As the Father hath loved me, Jesus said, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Listen, the Christian who loves the Lord is going to want to do what he commands. The Christian who loves the Lord, you're going to want to do what he commands. You say, how can we possibly keep God's commands? You can keep all God's commands by obeying one. You can keep all of God's commands by obeying one. Jesus says in John 14, 12, this is my commandment, here it is, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Friend, you want to be practical in your holiness that God has brought forth into your soul? Here's how you can do it. Love people. Put the spiritual well-being of others before what your flesh wants to do. And that will keep you living holy. I want you to think about that just for a moment tonight. What do you mean if I put the spiritual edification of others before myself? Listen, you won't choose to forsake the assembling of yourselves if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Church is not all about you. It's about edifying the rest of the body. Children, you won't disrespect and dishonor your parents if you love them. You can't hate people if you love people. You can't be bitter if you are loving people. You can't do these unholy things if you love people, friend. You won't commit adultery if you love what is best for your family. If you love what is best for the glory of God, it will keep you holy. Friend, I will tell you, and I'll be honest with you, marriage has helped my holiness. It has helped my purity because of Loving somebody more than I love myself. Ladies, if you want to show you care about what is pure in the mind of other men, you will live and dress modestly. It's just an honest truth from the Bible. Men, if you want to show you care about what is honest and pure, you will set up standards in your life to help you in that holy pursuit. You say standards and all these things, all, all these things are legalistic, friend. If you just do a casual reading of Ephesians chapter 4, and we don't have time to read all of it tonight, verses 25 through chapter 5 in verse 3, God tells us to put away certain things. He says, be angry not. Put away all malice. Put away all bitterness. Flee fornication. God says, put all these things away. Friend, what does that look like in the practical realm? How can you do all those things? It mean, You can do do it by loving the spiritual welfare of others before yourself. The ladies might say, well, it's the man's fault if he lusts after me. Friend, he does have a responsibility for his mind, but you can provide a, a stepping stone instead of a stumbling block. Oh, men, we, we say, well, my wife ought not respond that way. Yes, she's responsible for the way she responds, but you should not have said that to her. You could provide a stepping stone instead of a stumbling block. God says to be holy, not just for yourself, but for the benefit of those you're seated next to tonight. So they can grow spiritually 
Oh, if you understood the battle that some people fight in their heart and in their mind with temptation, are you helping them to grow and to have victory over that by how you live? Listen, you can't steal from someone if you're happy for them to have what you don't. You won't gossip and tell lies about people if you love them. It keeps you holy when you love people as Jesus commanded. If you love one another, you can be holy when you love what God loves. What does he love, church? God loves his word. God loves righteousness. And God hates sin. He paid a significant price to set you free from your sin. How dare you and I go back to it and justify it? Well, God accepts me. Yeah, he does. Now live like he accepts you. God, help us. You say, I don't know anybody. Yes, you do. Some of you have close relationships where that's being justified. It may be you tonight. Be holy. Because it's who you are. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I want to invite you to stand tonight. Meditate upon what the Holy Spirit imparted to you tonight. If God spoke to you, if the Holy Spirit came to you and said something, I encourage you 